0: This message was presented at the GYC 2010 No Turning Back Conference in Baltimore, Maryland. For other resources like this, visit us online at GYCweb.org. Happy
1: Sabbath, GYC. Happy Sabbath. Let me just also say to you, Happy New Year. The Bible says in the evening and the morning were the first day, so we don't wait till midnight for balls to drop. We know that when the sun sets, the day is ended and a new one has begun. And so we, I want to be the first to, or one of the first to welcome you into 2011, a year that I know God has filled with uh, opportunity and promise for the spreading of the gospel, for reaching out to others, and even for some of us to deal with some issues in our own lives. So I praise God for the new year because that's one more year that he allowed me to live to see. And another year he's given us an opportunity to be his servants in. We are, I think we're a little short on time tonight. So I'm going to try and be obedient to the clock. Somebody ought to say amen. I'm going to do my best. Um, But at the same time, I want what God has to be preached to be preached. And so I ask that you pray for me and pray with me. Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to continue tonight in our three-part series on the book of 2 Timothy, our message tonight is entitled, Unflinching Faith. 2 Timothy chapter 3, and I'll read verses 1 through 5. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. The Bible says, this know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, High minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. Our message again tonight is entitled Unflinching Faith. Unflinching Faith. Let us pray, Father God. We thank you, Lord, for this your holy Sabbath day. We thank you, Father, for a new year. And, Father God, I just ask right now that you make me an instrument of your peace, a vessel for your truth, and a canvas for your glory. Let Eric Walsh not be seen or heard tonight, Lord, but, Lord, bring us a a word from the very throne room of grace. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul is still in the dungeon. He's still living in a very difficult situation. He's writing Timothy, trying to warn Timothy, trying to encourage Timothy. Paul is a disheveled, angry Uh, not angry, but hungry man as he's trying to deal with the difficulties of being a prisoner of what is truly a madman in Nero. But Paul understood that when he was writing to Timothy that by writing to Timothy, he would get word that would go far. He understood the importance of what he was writing. In fact, when you look at the New Testament, much of the New Testament, of Paul's writings were submitted as affidavits in Paul's defense. So the people who went to try Paul when Paul was to go before Nero actually would have probably read, many of them, much of the New Testament in doing so. Also, what would have been submitted are the two books written by Luke, the the Apostle uh, Luke's Gospel as well as the book of Acts. So much of the Bible was submitted, so when Paul is writing here, he understands that not only hopefully does Timothy get the letter, and he's hoping that Timothy gets to him while he's still alive, but also the Roman power itself would get this letter. Because he was a prisoner, that it would be read before it was distributed any further. So Paul is writing to multiple audiences, but tonight I want to focus on the audience of us. The fact that Paul is writing, as I said last night, a message to the last generation. A message to those who would be alive at the close of Earth's history. Paul is writing to try and, and give the same admonition he's giving to Timothy to those of you young people who would enter into a work for Christ in the last days. He's trying to prepare you for the disappointment that will come from being attached to the church of the living God. That difficult and perilous times would come. And Paul is trying to make sure that you understand up front what you've signed up for. We live in a time where people will try and trick you, dupe you. Get you to buy things without you understanding it or get you to sign up for programs and when you get into it, you say, no, that's not what I want, but it's too late, you signed up. God doesn't deal with us like that. He is giving us a warning in the book of Second Timothy so that you cannot say you didn't know what was coming. In fact… As we read 2 Timothy chapter 3, it reminds us of something else. And that is that Paul was not just a great writer who, who helped to, to expand on some of the most important doctrines in Scripture. Like righteousness by faith uh, and the importance of, of fellowship and other things that Paul really focuses on. The importance of, of dealing with sin in a, in, a, in a serious way. But Paul also was a prophet. And here you get a glimpse of Paul uh, writing uh, as a prophet. As as he begins to write in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, chapter 3 and verse 1, he says, This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come. The word perilous in the Greek can also be stated that Fierce times will come. In fact, it is the same word used to describe the Gadarenes, the men who were uh, uh, possessed by demons. They were fierce. He says they were fierce with the connotation of a demonic element at work. The last days would be perilous, but but that's not the only definition you can get. It also says that they would, if you look at the Greek, that these would be days that would be hard to bear. Not impossible to bear. But these days, these last days, would be difficult days to live in. Difficult to survive in? No, these are days that if you call yourself a Christian, it will not be easy days for you to get through. He says, listen, the last days, Timothy, the last days, GYC, are going to be perilous times. And so Paul begins to outline the type of behaviors that you will see in the last days. He says that men would be lovers of their own selves. That's how he starts it off. Men would love themselves. They'd be covetous. They'd want what other people have. They'd they'd be boasters, proud, blasphemous, that they would be disobedient to their parents, unthankful and unholy. There's so so much in this. For of a truth, we live in a time when people love themselves to a point where it literally creates disease in individuals. They're so much more concerned about themselves, so selfish, so self-centered, so worried about uh, the me and the I and, and how people view them, that in fact, diseases that historically never existed, like anorexia and bulimia, Body dysmorphic disorders have come into existence because people are so focused on themselves. Have you ever seen the images of the people who spend tens of thousands of countless dollars on plastic surgery only to wind up a greater and more hideous monster than they could have ever dreamed of being? They paid to look ugly. had created him just fine, but under the scalpel of the plastic surgeon, men like Michael Jackson, you look at pictures of Michael Jackson when he was a child and, and you look at him at the time of his death and, and when you watch how he transforms during his life, it, it is one of the most uh, uh, befuddling things you could ever imagine, yet he is almost worshipped in our time. Why? Because these are perilous times. So that people who don't even really know themselves and, 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 and are at constant war with themselves, so focused on themselves that they mutilate themselves, are worshiped in themselves as if they were small GODs. So when Michael Jackson dies, we live in a time when churches had whole services dedicated to the life of Michael Jackson. Whole choirs put on one glove and sang, beat it. (laughs) Perilous times. They'd be covetous. They'd want what everybody else has. In fact, when you look at America's economic collapse recently, it speaks to the fact that we live in a society where people were so concerned with keeping up with the Joneses that they literally... Borrowed away their very futures to do it. Boasters, proud. Blasphemers. You look at uh, there was a great documentary I watched once called "Hollywood's War on God," and, and this 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 Christian uh, uh, filmmaker shows how all of the Hollywood movies have this 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 running theme through them. And one of the themes that you'll notice is that they consistently and repeatedly, like sixty or seventy percent of the movies made, will directly blaspheme the name of God. And more. So they really, as you can tell as you watch the documentary, they really want to blaspheme the name of Jesus Christ. And so when Christians go and spend their money to watch these movies, whether at home or in the theater, literally they are paying for an industry that in large part, not all of it, but in large part, has signed up to literally pick away at our God by making blaspheming the name of, name of God a part of the common vernacular perilous times, kids would be disobedient to parents, live in a time when kids tell parents what to do. You couldn't tell my mother what to do. You would be waking up, trying to figure out what hit you. My mother wasn't afraid and you'd… and you know, I hear kids say, I'll call child protective services. My mother said, go ahead, I'll have your bag packed when they get here. <laughs> we live in a time when the kids were, I, I remember working in urgent care and little kids would come in and like little, like little ninjas, they'd just be doing flips over the, over the gurneys and tables and the parents can't control them and if you can't control a child when they're two or three years old. What hope do you have of controlling or having any influence on the child when they're 17 or 18 years of age? We live in a time when we have confused love for a child with spoiling a child. And so children have no respect for their parents. And the problem with that history tells us is that if you can't respect your mother and your father, why in the world would you ever respect the police or the teacher in the classroom? Perilous times are going to come upon us. The scripture says that they would be unthankful, unholy, without natural affection. The, the very affection, the way that people are drawn to each other wouldn't be natural anymore. Unnatural things would begin to, to, to become common and, and, be, and be raised up. And I, and I told you last night I would talk to you a little bit more about some of the, the national meetings that I've been to. And I've been amazed when I go to these meetings where where really the agenda is a discussion about sexual health. So from a, a public health standpoint, theoretically, we're looking at how do you make it so that America has a better... Profile, as it were, of sexual health. So that would be less diseases, more, more, uh, less diseases, more death from some of those diseases, um, less unwanted pregnancies, they would say. They would say things like uh, more fulfilling relationships, maybe. And what I found was amazing unnatural affection. There were people there, one of whom was a, had his d- doctorate in uh, divinity from another denomination, and, and, I, and I was amazed when this man would say things like, there's nothing wrong with a man and a boy having relations. I would be amazed to hear leaders in our country, people who are, are, at the, are over whole university systems or, or over schools of theology, as they would say that their Bible does not say anything that would prohibit homosexuality. And I would be amazed as I'd be sitting there and there would just be a few of us who would be trying to speak up and say, wait a minute, uh, uh, maybe there's something uh, protective about God's plan for men and women and relationships. Maybe there's something protective and you would be uh, ridiculed. But what was amazing in these meetings is that yes, you would be ridiculed by the liberals who don't believe in God, the people to the far political left. But what began to shock me after a while is their ability to produce people who are members of churches, who are leaders in in, in religious organizations, who would literally back the argument of people who don't know God. And after a while I started to realize there is truly a work afoot in this country And in this world that is working to do away, to erase, as it were, to erase, as it were, all semblance of moral uh, uh, purity. There is a work afoot in these last days that is going to try to make it so that the most debased things are normal and common. Listen, the church can't be silent anymore. You can't do Bible studies and skip the sections on purity, sexual purity. You, you've got to, if you're going to, you have to instruct people of what God requires for them in that realm because it has become so commonplace that, that to have and exchange sexual partners is like going out and just buying a meal or, or just, it's as simple or as common as, as jumping on a roller coaster and, and, and you just jump from one roller coaster to the next one. Serial monogamy has been come the way for many, but even now, even that is being eroded, and we're seeing that multiple sexual partners has again become the order of the day in America. Now, let me submit to you that Paul saw that in the last days there would be great moral decline. What's not, it's not so shocking that the world has great moral decline. What's shocking and what Paul is really speaking to is that great moral decline has entered the church. That in fact the divorce rate is the same inside of Christendom in the United States as outside. Pastors don't stand up in pulpits anymore and say things like, if you divorce your wife for anything except adultery and you go and marry someone else, the new marriage is not accepted by God. They don't preach that anymore. We don't say that stuff anymore. Why? Because our congregations are full of divorcees and we don't want to offend anyone. But the problem is, then we set a new norm for the next generation. And we're living in a time when we don't understand that the media and now even the government are working to move America and the rest of the world into a dark moral decline. Paul could see it not just in the future prophetically, but he was watching as it was unfolding in ancient Rome. Paul could see that Rome herself would eventually collapse Because one of the major ways that it would happen is that moral decay would set up so deep into the fabric of the civilization that was ancient Rome that eventually Rome would not be able to sustain herself. And eventually, Rome fell. And if you draw the parallels between ancient Rome, her overexpansion into territories, her inflation… The fact that Rome began to stop using solid silver coins as her currency and started to use base metals and barely cover them in silver, it reminds you of the United States of America now. Where we live in a country where they just print money. So yeah, the federal government always is solvent because, yeah, the the federal government, they need more money, they just just print it. So what is not backed by anything? we're America. The same kind of arrogance sank Rome. There are those who predict that by 2050 China will be a much more stable, strong, and powerful economy than ours if the American economy doesn't change. The same things are happening in the last days to this world power as happened to that one. But I want to submit to you that just as Paul is saying here, when he look at this without natural affection. He goes on, he says, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce. And look at the last part of verse three. He says, despisers of those that are good. There was a man that came out in the uh, early part of last century, a man named Alistair Crowley. Alistair Crowley's mother called him The beast. He wanted to be known as the most wicked man who ever lived. And something happened by him, he was able, a British man, he was able to to infect the world by infecting key people in popular culture. The Beatles' Sgt. Pepper Lonely Hearts Club album has a picture of him on the cover. Michael Jackson's Dangerous album has a picture of him on the cover looking at Michael Jackson's uh, uh, grayed hand holding a naked boy in it. And the naked boy is holding the skull of a dragon. Alistair Crowley's influence goes through to many. He's the one who introduced this new occult movement that is afoot in Hollywood called Kabbalah. Alistair Crowley infiltrated so much that even when you look at someone like Jay-Z, Alistair Crowley's Book of the Law, which eventually leads to to, uh, uh, the the satanic church and their one commandment, which is, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. The whole law in the church of Satan is that you can do whatever you want. And I have pictures in some of my seminars where I show Jay-Z the most popular rapper of all time wearing a Rockaware t shirt that says on it, Do as thou wilt. The literal one commandment of the Church of Satan, straight from Aleister Crowley. But you see, if that stuff stayed in the world, it wouldn't be such perilous times. It was easy to see that the world has accepted these crazy doctrines and have gone into this this, this deep moral decline, it wouldn't be bad. But the problem is, if you come into church and the church no longer has any standards, that in fact the doctrines of many of the denominations now really are a doctrine of, of what they call complete liberation. If I am in Christ Jesus, I cannot be lost. So I can do whatever I want. And hence, they use and they take the grace of God and turn it into disgrace. Taking the very grace and mercy of God and they take it and what they've done with it is they've actually used it to take the one commandment of the church of Satan and move that one commandment into a command of the Christian churches. When Paul says we'd be living in perilous times, we get to see it. We are living in times when you have got to be totally and completely committed to Jesus Christ. Because on all sides, you're being moved to believe that you're a fanatic if you stand for anything. Paul goes on to say They would be traitors in verse 4, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. One of the mistakes that our churches are making, and I'm sorry if I'm going to be a little real tonight. One of the mistakes that our churches are making is that we believe that the way that we'll keep young people is if we find a way to entertain them. And I'm not against kids playing softball and having a good time and fellowshipping that, that, That's not my problem. I don't have a problem with that. I think kids should go on hikes and they should do things together. They should have fellowship. But there's a fundamental problem when we're willing to not teach young people anything. And instead we replace no truth, no doctrine. We replace it simply with Stay around the church at all costs because all we really care about is that you're here. In fact, it was Time Magazine, I believe it was, that actually ran an article on all of the young adults in the United States who are leaving the evangelical churches in droves. And they went and they did an interview of these young people and asked the hard question, why is it that after you were raised a Baptist or a Methodist or or whatever denomination it was, why is it that you left and are now not attending church at all in your mid to late 20s? What is it that shifted that you no longer are connected with church in that way? You know what the young people said? Because we had an MTV church experience. And one of the things they say in this article is they say, and and the reason is that when we got to college and they challenged us on evolution and creation and they challenged us on homosexuality and they challenged us on premarital sex, we could not give a defense for what we believed. And because we couldn't defend what we believed, we ceased to believe anything. Scripture says in verse 5, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such, turn away. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such, turn away. Let me submit to you that we live in a time when for many people being religious is very popular. it's, It's a part of their culture more than it is a part of their spiritual life. And so people are religious, but they don't necessarily have an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. And one of the manifestations of that is that by having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof is that people will outwardly appear to be very religious inside the church. But the power of God, which is the power of to convert you, to convict you, and to change the way you live is absent in their lives. So instead of being a Christian, who is bold for Christ and the evidence that they have Christ in their lives is is seen in how they live their lives. Instead, they actually live just like the world and hold on to a title of being Christian. That's a dangerous place to be. In fact, in Revelation, the Bible says that God would rather you were hot or you were cold and not lukewarm and that he would spew the people out that were in this condition. This is one of the reasons that Paul says you should turn away from these people. It's a dangerous thing to be around those who think they have ain't and they know God, think they're in a relationship with God and really don't want anything to do with Him. It's a dangerous place to be. And it's amazing because, you know, you watch the televangelists, guys like Creflo Dollar. And Creflo Dollar has this incredible gospel of prosperity that he preaches. And, and I always wonder how he got the name Dollar. And he kind of preaches about money all the time. and Maybe he changed his name, I don't know. And there are many people who have moved to believe that the evidence, don't miss this, the evidence that you are in a relationship with Jesus Christ is not that you begin to grow in Christ and that you begin to lay aside the sins that so used to easily beset you. That you begin to be a different person, a new creation, a new creature in Christ Jesus. But that the evidence that you're in a relationship with Jesus Christ in these last and terrible perilous days for so many people now is how prosperous you are. How much you have in the bank. How nice your car is. It's a terrible thing when people are being duped to believe that if they are in a relationship with Jesus Christ, what happens is… You get rich. And being wealthy is the litmus test among so many Christians that they have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul says that this is having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. From such, he says, turn away. And the reason for this is people do not want a relationship that will cause them to have to move to change their lives. In fact, at those meetings in Atlanta, one of the interesting stories that happened was when we had a host, they they brought me out for one of the meetings and it was on religion and sexuality. And again, I was amazed that they they produced church leaders, deans of the schools of theology, all kinds of, a Muslim woman, and all of them believed in these radical, non-biblical ideas of sexuality and purity. And I remember when it came around to me to talk about my religion and what I believe. And I said, let me start by saying I believe in a separation of church and state. I said, in fact, the Bible says, and I quoted the scripture on purpose to them. The Bible says that Jesus speaking that you should render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. I said, so guess what? I don't care what you guys say. I don't care what laws they pass in the United States, as for me and my house, we're gonna serve the Lord. And I could see that some of them began to get upset. And they began to try and rebuttal. Now do you remember, these are mostly people who teach in the schools of theology of America, the divinity schools. These are leaders of large churches, bishops even. And I remember It was spiritual warfare because one of the persons at the table began to stare at me. I mean, stare at me and, you know, it's like they were trying to give me an evil eye or something. Jamaica, they call it obia. And, and they were just staring at me. And, and I remember as it went around to this person, and this person was an interesting person. Uh, I, uh, she had gone through general surgery and, and learned plastic surgery. And she said that her goal was to go into low-income and poor neighborhoods, and that what she wanted to do in these low-income and poor neighborhoods is provide inexpensive and cheap transgender surgeries for individuals. Make it easy and cheap. For poor people in America to go from being male to female or female to male, that was her, 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 her calling. Now, what you didn't know up front is that she used to be a he. And she's staring at me now. She's, st- she's staring at me now. And I said, Lord, and I just started to pray. And as it begins to move around the table, and, and she gets her turn, and I used to, at first I, I would mess up and call her he all the time, and I always get corrected. I even slipped once and said, shim, she and him, <laughs> uh, and I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have done that. But she looked at me, and she looked at me, and when it came to her turn, she said, I was a man once. She said, and I was engaged to be married and I was a Catholic and I, and I went to the Canaan classes and I guess that's what the Catholic church does when, to prepare you for marriage and I was married and she's a, she's a, she was a man then and she was married to a woman and I was married and it didn't work because I was a woman trapped in a man's body. And she said, and she started to try and quote scripture and just messed it all up, Did, couldn't put two scripture together because she's trying to make the point that she had been religious she was a Catholic and she gave up church, she said, because it was too restrictive. She gave up on God because he was too restrictive. And right now I'm sitting here and, and next to me is the assistant to the former Surgeon General of the United States. And the former Surgeon General is two seats over from me and, 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 and David Satcher and he's sitting there. And when it gets to her, she says, she says and, and that's why now I no longer go to church. She said, I'm a Wiccan. David Satcher leans over his assistant to me and says, what, what does it mean that she's a, she's a Wiccan? And I said, she's a witch! <laughs> he said, what, what? She's a what? <laughs> Why? Because if you're in Christ Jesus and if you're studying God's Word and you have a relationship with Jesus Christ the Word itself begins to bother you. But people want a form of godliness. So, so now into the church seeps witchcraft and, and voodoo and all of these things start to come in and, and, and I was talking to one of my friends today and they were talking about their church where they brought in a, 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 a Congo drums and, and the guy was walking around the church doing the African, uh, some kind of rites of passage ritual and, and, and I was like, you know, that, you got to be careful. That could be voodoo. Why? Because the devil will let you do whatever you want. And he likes, he he knows that man, like Loma Linda says, to make man whole, he knows that man is whole when there's a spiritual aspect. So if he's going to remove Christianity out, a form of godliness must replace it. Matter of fact, Paul goes further in verse 6 and says, For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women, laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts, ever learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. He says that look, in the last days it's going to get so terrible that evil forces will worm their way into houses. You would almost think Paul understood that there would be high-speed internet running into the houses of the last days. That he would understand that satellites would be linked up, that cable would be linked up, and that all of a sudden the evil influences of the world would no longer need to knock on the front door of your house to get in. But in fact, you would download the devil. Paul seems to understand that in the last times, the availability of evil to to quickly get around the globe would not, would be like nothing the world has ever seen. And sure enough, I call this the Oprah Winfrey effect. They creep into houses and Oprah Winfrey now is going to start her own uh, network called OWN, O-W-N. But isn't it amazing that Oprah Winfrey, who, who runs this huge, was going to run this huge network, also through what her and Eckhart Tolle have started the world's largest online church. And when you go online, I challenge you to Google or YouTube some of the stuff on Oprah Winfrey where she literally has people who walk away from Christianity and, and despise it and say that they have been so enlightened now. They're no longer Christians, no longer Baptists, no longer Methodists. They've been liberated by this doctrine, this theology that Oprah Winfrey and Eckhart Tolle are preaching. It's as if Paul understood that. He says, for of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women, laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts. Ever learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. But if you've dropped down, Paul is still writing in his dungeon cell. Still writing to Timothy in verse 10, he says, But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. And Lystra is where Timothy met Paul in the first place. Timothy watched Paul be stoned, almost beaten to death. You can read that story in the book of Acts, the fourteenth chapter, where where Paul is uh, uh, after he heals a crippled man, and and and, and the the Greeks want to worship him as one of the gods, come down from heaven, and he refuses, and the Jews riled him up, and they're, they they try to kill him, they beat him, drag him out of town. Timothy is uh, is probably standing there to see when Paul gets back on his feet and dusts himself off and praises God for the opportunity to be abused for the gospel of Jesus Christ. By the time Paul comes back to Lystra, Timothy by now is a disciple. He's called a disciple in the scripture and he's on his way to serving God. He says, Timothy, you know what I've been through. He says, but out of them all, the Lord delivered me. Verse 12, he says, and yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution says in verse 13, but evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived, but continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 16, it's an important text. Paul says to Timothy, speaking to us, he says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. In fact, when churches say they are non-denominational, the challenge I have with them is denominations are defined by doctrine. So if you're non-denominational, are you saying that you are non-doctrinal? And what you find is that there are churches that literally, and I spoke at the Saddleback Church in Orange County, Rick Warren's big church, and the Purpose Driven Life Church, and, and, and I remember having this discussion at the church with them where they would say, you know what, we, we kind of just believe different things. What do you mean? Well, some of us are pre-millennial, some of us are intermillennial, and some of us are post-millennial. I said, so your church is kind of like going to a buffet at the Indian restaurant. You get to pick what you believe. But the Bible says, no, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be what? Perfect. The word perfect here means from the Greek, perfectly suited to do a work for God. Perfectly put together to do something for God that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good work. Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters, we're living in some hard times. It is being based in the Scripture. They used to say it sola scriptura, the Bible and the Bible alone. Because all of the philosophies of the world, when they begin to come down on you, if you begin to believe them, you'll get led off into some crazy stuff. And the devil will take you on a rat race. In fact, as you look at uh, the world, the devil will bless you. He'll even multiply and prosper you. In order to keep you from really getting back into God's word and scripture and following what God wants you to do. Our faith must be unflinching. You've got to be so serious about your relationship with Jesus Christ because you live in perilous and hard and difficult times. Some of you think that you can't be used. You wonder if you've gone too far from God to be used. But I'm here to challenge you tonight that you too can be perfect you can become a perfect vessel in the hand of the living God. I'm here to challenge you tonight that your righteousness is by faith. And that your problem isn't a doing problem, it's a believing problem. That we've got to put our trust in God and when we begin to lean on the everlasting arms, Jesus himself will show up and the love of Christ will constrain us and the things you used to do As you get information from the scripture as to what should be put aside, easily those things will fall off of you. If you're in Christ, he's looking to redeem you. The story is told of a young man. Went out drinking one night and playing poker. It's a true story. happened in the southwestern part of the United States, but not in California. And I'd like to say some good things can come out of California. (laughs) And as this young man went out to play poker, he got into an argument with the man sitting across the table from him. And when he got into this argument, he reached down into his bag and grabbed a gun and pointed it across the table, and he shot and kill the man sitting across the table from him. The man in the chair fell over dead. The police came and arrested the young man who shot this other young man. He was taken down to the precinct and he was booked and had his first round of trials and he was sent to jail and later he went before the judge and jury and he was convicted of first-degree murder. jury sentenced him to death in the electric chair. The process, of course, took a few years and true story. His family in the meantime, working, trying to help him, arguing that he was drunk. He, it really wasn't him. He's, he's not really a murderer. They were trying to get when the, ex- when the uh, conviction came down and he was sentenced to the death penalty. They tried Not to get him released from the conviction, but just to get a stay of execution. So everybody in the family began to write petitions. And all of them in his house signed it, and in the next house, and the next house, and the whole street signed it. Then the next street, and the next street, and the next block, till the whole town, and the next town, until finally... One day after it seemed as if the whole state had signed a petition to stay this young man's execution and leave him with just life in prison. Eventually what happens is a knock is made on the governor of the state's door and a basket of petitions is brought and dropped in front of the governor of the state. The governor of the state was a Christian and when he realized that it was mercy and grace that the citizens of his state wanted to apply to this young man, he was so happy that he sat down immediately because so many years had passed now that he wrote out a full pardon for the young man. A full pardon was written for the young man. The governor was gonna go down to death row to deliver the the letter in person. So before he left, he went into his closet and he slipped on a preacher's robe. He said in his mind, you know how, what better way to deliver this message than dressed up like a preacher. He gets down via limousine to the state penitentiary and he is met by the warden and he runs upstairs to death row. The warden points to the cell where the young man is being kept. And the governor, as he begins to walk into the cell, the young man jumps off of his bunk and yells at the governor, get out. The governor says, wait, hold on. I've got news. I've got the best news. The young man says, I was raised a Christian and and look where it's landed me. Get out. The governor says, hold on, man. I've I've got news. I've, I've got good news says you're the third preacher that's been here this week. Get out. The governor tries one last time. He says you don't understand. I've I've got good news. The young man says if you don't get out, I'm calling the governor. I'm calling the warden and the guards and I'm going to have you put out. governor drops his head and Folds up the paper and sticks it in his pocket and walks out and the warden gets him and whisks him off to the limousine and he's taken back to the governor's mansion and the the warden is happy now he comes running into the cell and sits with the young man and says how did your visit with the governor go? The young man says you mean that man dressed up like a preacher was the governor? He says yes and he had a full pardon for you. You were going to be let out. The young man says, he's got to be kidnapped. Me. Give me some paper. Let me write, dear governor. I, I'm so sorry. I didn't know it was you. Warden takes the letter and is delivered to the governor and the governor gets it. And with tears streaming down the governor's face, he reads the letter and he turns it over and writes on the back, no longer interested in this case. Day comes for that young man to be put to death by electrocution and as he's sitting in the chair they ask him do you have any last words you want to say before you die the young man says yes tell the young men of America that I'm not dying because I'm a murderer tell them that I'm not dying because of what I did but tell them I am not dying today because I refuse To accept the pardon. Young people, let me tell you. You've got to remember when you go out to do your Bible studies and even in your own personal life. When you look at yourself. Nobody's going to be lost because of what they did per se. Because any one of us who decides to accept the full pardon that is in Jesus Christ will be saved. Jesus, the great governor of the universe. When the petitions of our sins came up before him, he didn't put on the robe of a governor. He slipped on the flesh of a baby and was born in a manger. And with his own blood, he wrote out a full pardon for every one of us. Have unflinching faith. Because you too can be perfect if you can accept the blood of Jesus in your life. Father God, we just thank you for the word of warning you give us in your scripture. That these last days would be perilous times. But Lord, we are even more thankful for the blood of Jesus Christ. So that we know that Lord, not only can we get through these difficult times, but by the grace of the living God, we can thrive in these, li- in these difficult times. Father God, cover each one of us in the blood of Jesus Christ. Let our lives not ever be the same. Let us live differently because we have met the Jesus, the Christ, the Savior. So Father God, as we leave GYC, let us never leave your presence. No matter where we go, Lord, let us be ambassadors of your grace and your goodwill. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let the church say amen.
0: This message was produced by GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. GYC seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians in contemporary contexts. To download or purchase other resources like this, Or, if you have been blessed by GYC and would like to donate, visit GYCWeb.org or email info at GYCWeb.org. You could also reach us via mail at P.O. Box 3786, Ann Arbor, Michigan, 48106. This recording is licensed under Creative Commons. This means you can copy and share it with anyone you like. Please attribute this recording to GYC wherever you reuse it, and keep in mind that resale and alteration are strictly prohibited.